passage today is from 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. The world in which we live is an uncertain world. We certainly got a glimpse of that yesterday. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, The longing for certainty is in every human mind, but certainty is generally an illusion. Nothing is perfect. Life is messy. Relationships are complex. Outcomes are uncertain. People are irrational. Hugh McKay. Life is short. Break the rules. Forgive quickly. Kiss slowly. Love truly. Laugh uncontrollably. And never regret anything that makes you smile. Mark Twain. Live for the moment because everything else is uncertain. Lewis Tomlinson. In this uncertain world, a good piece of cake is at least an undeniable pleasure. <laughs> Anonymous. Life is uncertain. Eat dessert first. <laughs> There's no doubt that we live in a world of uncertainties, maybe more now, in spite of all of our material advances than ever before. I mean, just look at what we're facing currently right now. The coronavirus, market unsteadiness, unprecedented, at least in our lifetime, political divide and hostility, greatly differing visions for our country. And this is in addition to all of, let's say, the normal uncertainties of life. You know, the health of our family, the safety of our family, increasing secularization and abandonment of biblical morality and a, a large segment of the millennial generation turning away from God and the church. There's no doubt that we live in a world of uncertainty. This fallen world has always been an uncertain place. The writers of Scripture recognize this as well. The psalmist says in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth should change and the mountains slip into the heart of the sea and the waters roar and foam, the mountains quake with swelling pride. Even though everything should change, they recognize that we live in an uncertain world. And Jesus said, do not be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, or about your body, what, what you will wear. And Paul said, don't be anxious about anything. But by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And Peter said, casting all your anxieties upon him because he, he, he cares for you. Well, as the Apostle John brings his letter of 1 John to a close, it's almost as if he senses the uncertainties of the world that his readers, his, his little children will face. And he wants to remind them one more time of those things that are certain with God. Those things that are never changing. So in these final verses of this book, he says, We know 
And then again he says, we know. And then he ends it, and we know this. Each time reiterating an unchanging, unchanging truth of God. And then his final words are, but be careful. And so I've entitled our passage today as we conclude the book of 1 John, Certainties in an Uncertain World. In some ways, by way of context, we might say that John began his conclusion in the previous passage, which we looked at last week. He writes there and says that, uh, that we might know that we have eternal life. He writes for that purpose, that we might have that certainty, that we might know we have eternal life. Not have to speculate about it until the day of our death. We might know. He speaks of the confidence that we can have in prayer, knowing that God does hear our requests. We don't understand everything about prayer, but we do know that God hears our requests when we cry out to Him. And the promise of restoration when we pray for a brother or a sister who's fallen into sin. Now he continues by focusing on three things that we must know. Three certainties. Number one, we know, verse 18, that we are secure. Verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. I want to look at the first half of this verse first. We know that no one who is born of God sins. Does this raise a question in your mind? If he is saying, is he saying, that if we are truly born again, we will not sin. It should raise a question because John has already clearly acknowledged in this, in this book that we all sin as believers, those who have been born of God. I mean, in chapter 1 and verse 9, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. He clearly says that we as believers sin. Chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but knowing full well that we will if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He says, I'm writing to you so that you don't sin, but when you do, if and when you do, then this is how we deal with it. And the other writers of Scripture say the same thing. And we go to multiple passages that would indicate that. So how, how, do we, how are we to understand this? John says, we know that no one who is born of God sins. Well, it's often understood to mean, and this is the way it's most often translated, that the truly born again person does not habitually sin. For example, the NIV says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue in sin. The ESV, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But as, I don't know, as logical or whatever, reasonable or whatever, that may sound at first, 
that solution is ultimately unacceptable and leads only to further questions. You see, to say that, it is totally subjective. It's totally subjective. How much sin is habitual sin? To say that the, the tr truly born-again person does not sin. How much sin is habitual? How, how do we define it? How do we quantify it? Don't we all sin daily? So does he mean then that none of us is born again? I mean, do you see the problem here? That if you say that, uh, that it means that, it, that if you're truly born again, you won't continue to sin. But you have to just either gloss over what the reality of our lives are or redefine sin or something so that we can redefine it so that we can say, I still know that I'm born again even though I know I still continue in sin. It just doesn't provide a solution. And it makes the validity of our salvation experience to be based on what we do following salvation. It's like when we come to Christ, it's, it's probationary, and if we don't sin too much, then it's real. If we don't sin too much, then it becomes real at some point. You know, it's, it's just, um, that's why I say that, that solution sounds good at first, sounds very reasonable. Oh yeah, that's, uh, that makes sense. But when you look into it deeper, it doesn't really provide a solution. And then it ultimately leads to a loss of assurance of salvation because we can never know if our sin is too much or to such an extent to say that, well, we've never truly been born again. <clears throat> so what, it, what does John mean? Well, for some reason, John feels compelled here to appeal to our true identity in Christ our identity as a child of God, born of God, born of the Father, that aspect of who we are. And in our nature, as one born of God, we do not sin. No sin proceeds from our nature as one born of God. It doesn't mean that we do not sin as a whole person. And I know it sounds like you're you know, really you know, making fine divisions here, but, but I, think this is, I think this is what John is saying here. It doesn't mean we don't sin as a whole person, but sin does not proceed from our new nature and position and standing in Christ as a child of God. Yes, we sin, but it doesn't come from that new nature that has been born of God. Our sin comes from our flesh comes from our old nature. I mean, that, that, that's really what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 7. You know, there's this side of me that says, this is what I want to do, but there's this other side of me that says, this is what I keep doing and I don't like it. And, and it's the same thing that the Apostle John is talking about here. Our sin is really in spite of and contrary to our identity as a child of God. Our sin obscures our identity as one born of God. And the sin in our life is incompatible with and in conflict with our new nature and true identity as a child of God. So what's his point then? Why, why does he split these hairs, so to speak, or whatever? He says, you know, 
in our new nature as one born of God, we don't sin. But this is what is implied, and you can almost insert this as a parenthesis. This is what is implied. But the reality is because we are still in our unredeemed bodies, we do sin. So we might read it this way. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but the reality is because we are still in unredeemed bodies, we do sin. And then John continues, but he who was born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. Well, we've jumped out of the frying pan now into the fire with the second half of the verse. And this can be translated in a number of ways, and I'm not going to go into all the details as to why and the, and the technical aspects of it, but I might suggest this. But the one born of God, he, God protects, and the evil one does not touch him. I would suggest that we translate the second half that way, or to smooth it out. But God protects the one born of God, and the evil one does not touch him. That's how I would suggest that we translate the last half of verse 18. God protects the one born of God. And the evil one does not touch him. And John's wonderful point is, as those who are born of God, we ought not to sin, but when we do, God is faithful to keep us and protect us so that the evil one cannot take us away from him. That's his point in verse 18. The evil one cannot take us away from him. When John says the evil one does not touch us, he doesn't mean that he cannot attack us. He doesn't mean that he cannot fight against us. You remember what Paul said, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces, and you know we're struggling and in this warfare and all of that. But the evil one cannot grab us and take us away from him. The word touch here is the same word used of Mary when she saw the risen Christ and fell at his feet and grabbed hold of him. And Jesus said, stop clinging to me. It's the same word clinging to me. Stop touching me. Stop clinging to me in that way. The evil one cannot grab us and hold on to us for his own purposes. So we know, John says, as he closes out this letter, we know we are secure in him. And you know, there may be times that this world is so uncertain and life is so painful that that is all we know and the only thing to which we can cling. That we are secure in Him. When our world falls apart, we know we are secure in Him. He moves on to the second thing he wants us to know. We know that we belong to God. 
verse 19. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We are of God means that we belong to him. He has made us his own people. We might say, we know that we are on God's side. Not because we are better people, but because of his grace. It's all, all, only because of his grace. But the rest of the world, John says, meaning the people of the world and the entire world system, it's all under the power of the evil one. All under the sway of the evil one. Under the controlling influence of the evil one. Carrying out the purposes of the evil one. And this means that our life, our values, our faith, all of that is at odds with the way of the world. We are of Him. The rest of everything is under the influence, power, sway, control of the evil one. You know, in this country where we live, it's almost like, for some reason, we've signed a, a ceasefire or a temporary truth with Satan and his forces, although they keep encroaching on the terms of the truce. But in other countries, God's people and purposes are literally under attack by the evil one. So we must remember that no matter how bad it gets, no matter how much of a minority we may be, no matter what the persecution might be, we belong to God. We are of Him. We are on His side through Jesus Christ. Third thing He wants us to know is we know the true God. This is incredible. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come. We know this. We know this. And remember, John is writing as an eyewitness. Okay. And, and, and this right here. We know that the Son of God has come. This says it all. When everything else is stripped away, this is what we know. And this is really the foundation stone of our faith. That Jesus is the Son of God. He's come to this earth. If we don't believe this, pack it up, man. Let's go home. Jesus is the Son of God. He's come to this earth as the Savior. We know this. And we continue. Verse 20. And has given us understanding. What he's saying here is this. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, we understand who He is. We know that the Son of God has come. And He has given us understanding. We see Him. We understand. We see Him for who He is. The world scoffs at us. 
because, because they don't see it. They don't see Jesus as the Son of God the way that we do. They don't get it. But He has removed the blindness from our eyes and our hearts so that we see and understand who He is. He's given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true. We have this understanding so that we might know the true God. Just think how boastful and narrow-minded that sounds in our pluralistic world today. That we might know Him who is true. There's one true God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. But this is biblical reality. There is one, but one true God. And he has been revealed in Jesus. And we are in him who is true and his son, Jesus Christ. To be in him in John's usage is to abide in him in that close, dependent, and obedient relationship. So we abide in him, the Father, and in his son. And get this last statement. This is the true God and eternal life. This, the Father and the Son, is the one true God. What an incredible statement on the deity of Christ, the deity of Jesus, but also the exclusivity of the statement. This is the true God. And eternal life is found only in Him. It's almost as if John was addressing the world of competing religions. In his day and in the, and in the years and the centuries to come. And he certainly could include the day in which we live. And he says, we know this, we are certain of this. We know that Jesus has come and He is the true God. We need, to, we need to know this. We need to affirm this in the increasingly secular and pluralistic age in which we live. So John has given us three foundational truths unto which we must hold in an uncertain world. We know with certainty that we are secure in Him. We know with certainty that we belong to Him. And we know with certainty the true God and eternal life in Him. His final words are a warning. But be careful. But be careful. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. It's not the way we'd expect his book to conclude. That's not the way the epistles usually close out, you know, because normally have some kind of salutation, grace and peace, and give my greetings to such and such. And John just says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. You see, John lived in an idolatrous culture. The cult of Diana was centered in Ephesus. And then there was the imperial religion of Rome and the emperor worship. And we know of the abundance of idols in that culture, in that area, 
from Paul's writings as he dealt with, you know, how to respond to when food offered that has been, uh, how to respond to eating food that has been offered in idols' temples. And so there's an abundance of idol, idol worship in that culture. So it could very well have been about those idols that, Paul, that John directed these words. But there's a perspective here that goes far beyond the first century idols. You see, an idol is an anything. An idol is anything that takes that takes that place in our lives that only God should occupy. Not that we would bow down to some statue and offer sacrifices to it, but anything that takes that place of preeminence and priority in our lives. That place, that place that is reserved for God. When anything else takes that place, it becomes an idol. You see, our, our, our life, it can be likened to as, likened to a, a wheel with spokes and a hub. And the hub is the center of the wheel, and all the spokes go out from the hub. And God, if, if, if that's our life, God is the hub. And the spokes going out from that are all the other areas of interest in our lives. Uh, you know, our families, our careers, our social lives, our hobbies, interests, whatever else it may be. They're spokes that go out, but God remains at the center. But so often, something else becomes the center of our life, and God becomes just a spoke, just one of the many spokes, other areas in our lives. And when that happens, that's idolatry. That's an idol. That has become an idol in our lives. And John's final words are, be careful. Be on your guard. In spite of what we know to be true, John says, be careful. Idolatry is real. It can happen to those who know and believe the right things. So this is the book of 1 John. Life in the Son. Through faith, obedience, and love. But as we close out this little book today, I'd like to take a quick trip back through it and some of the highlight verses just to look at once again before we leave it, highlighting some of the profound and memorable and hopefully lasting truths. And maybe, maybe as we do this, you can pick out one or two verses and say, that, that's, that's what I need to work on. That, 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 God's speaking to me right there. That, that one's for me.
That's what I, that's what I needed to hear today. So look out for that, okay? All right. 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. What was in the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. John begins this way significantly. He is writing, remember this, as an historical eyewitness. He was there. It gives credibility to what he says because he writes as an eyewitness. It's critical for the credibility of John's writings, but for New Testament manuscripts in general as well. Wrote as an eyewitness. It was there, what we've seen, what we've heard, what we've handled, we saw it. They were there. 1 John 1, 5 through 7. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. We're not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. God is a holy God. That's what we sang about today. And we cannot walk in fellowship with Him. No matter how much we proclaim otherwise, if we are walking in darkness, in sin. Living a holy and righteous life is at the essence of the Christian life. 1 John 1, 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is a forgiving God. And when we as believers sin, we need to confess our sin to restore our fellowship to Him. 1 John 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. This is the basis for our forgiveness. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. In his death, he satisfied the wrath of God against our sins. And he is our advocate before the Father. And he is the basis upon which God can forgive us of our sins. 1 John 2, 3, and 4. And by this we know that we have come to know him. How? How do we know that we've really come to know him? We keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. We can't really say that we know God, that we really love God, we're really in fellowship with God if we live indifferently to what he tells us to do and how to live. We don't keep his commandments. We must take the commands and instructions of the New Testament, of the Bible, of God's word seriously. I mean, again, it's at the essence of, of, of the Christian life. 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Our first love, our first love should be for God and the things of God. 
But it's possible, as John recognizes here, that our love for the things of this world surpasses our love for God. That's when it becomes an idol. 1 John 2, 18. Children, it's the last hour. Just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. The reality is that there are many Antichrists in the world today. They precede the final Antichrist who will come at the end time but there are many today who undermine and oppose the message that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Be on your guard, John says. Verse John 2.22, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. This is the message of the Antichrist then, and this is the message of the Antichrist today to deny that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Son of God and the only Savior of the world. First John 2, 28, And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him at His coming. John is seeking to prepare us to be ready for the Lord's coming. To abide in Him means to live in a close, intimate, dependent, and obedient relationship with the Lord and if we live this way, we're ready for when He should come. We won't have to be ashamed when He comes. First John 3, Beloved, we are now the children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. This is the blessed and purifying hope of the believer waiting for the Lord's return. To know that when He comes, we will be made like Him. Hallelujah. Finally. And we will see our Redeemer in all His glory, all of His beauty. And so we want to be ready. We want to be ready when He comes. 1 John 3, 16. Our love for one, and, uh, excuse me. We know love by this that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's good and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children. Some of the most powerful words in 1 John, right here. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Our love for one another is to be modeled after the Lord's love for us. It was truly sacrificial. And our love for one another is to be sacrificial. That's what we're called to, a sacrificial love. Not a love of convenience, but a love of sacrifice. Not just with kind words, but sacrificial and often inconvenient actions. 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love God does not know God, for God is love. It's like John said previously, we can't really say we know God if we don't keep His commandments. Well, we can't really say we know God if we don't love one another. We can't say it. 
We don't really know him if we're not loving one another. Because God is love. How can we say we know a God is love and yet we're not showing that love to those around us? 1 John 4, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Once again, we cannot say we love God if we don't love one another. It's that simple. 1 John 5. By this we know the love of By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. We know we really love others when we not simply obey God's commands. But get this. We know we love others when we obey God's commandments toward them. That person who might be difficult to love. We're commanded to love. And we know we love them. Not just by saying that we do. But when we obey God's commands toward that person. To love that person is to treat that person as God commands us to in His Word. And then finally, the last one we'll look at, 1 John 5, 11 and 12. And, this is the wit- and the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the gospel message. Narrow and exclusive though it may be. Eternal Life is in the Son, Jesus Christ, alone. Alone. He who has the Son by faith then has eternal life. He who does not have the Son, meaning he who does not believe in Him as the Son of God and the Savior, does not have life. May the truths of this little book of 1 John, may they become a part of our lives as individuals and for us as His people, the church. May we experience life in the Son through faith, through obedience, through loving one another. These are indeed certainties in an uncertain world. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word that you have given to us. We thank you for this little book of 1 John that you've given to your church. And we pray that the Spirit of God would be pleased to use the truths from this book in the lives of this church. That in some way we would all be challenged, in some way we would all be changed by what we have seen in your word here in these five 
chapters. Lord, there is, there is so much there, but there is something there for each of us even today. May the Spirit of God just impress that truth that is needful for each person here upon the minds, upon our minds and upon our hearts, Lord. What it is that we need from your word today. May the Spirit of God write it upon our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.